0: Welcome to Revealing Men, conversations that pull back the curtain, revealing the inner lives of men. I'm Randy Flood, psychotherapist and director of the Men's Resource Center of West Michigan. Well, I'd like to welcome Ken Porter, a somatic therapist, back to Revealing Men podcast. He's been with us uh, several occasions. And so, Ken, thanks for taking some time out of your day to come chat again with me.
1: Yeah, thank you, Randy. Yeah. I'll be back.
0: So today we are going to talk, Ken and I have been talking about uh, polyvagal theory and, and so we've decided today to talk about polyvagal theory specifically and how it might explain how some men experience the traumatic aspects of male socialization. We don't want to say that all male socialization is traumatic but there are certain ways in which if done rigidly Um, it can create um, problems for men, mental health problems. And so we want to talk about it from a polyvagal lens, and Ken's going to help us understand that. But before we get into that, I wanted Ken just to be able to talk a little bit about his expertise. He comes into my groups, my men's groups, and, and does somatic therapy, more experiential type of therapy. And so that will help for Ken just to kind of give a brief overview of what somatic therapy is.
1: I would say somatic therapy is its a practice of learning to listen to information from your body in order to heal emotionally, in order to heal uh, or to strengthen and grow your ability to be more relational with other people, um, to be more fulfilled in your life. Um, so it's it's there. There are many types of somatic therapy, and the type that I primarily practice is Hakomi therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's basically geared towards understanding unconscious patterns that we all walk around with, right. and um, and doing that through awareness of the body, because these unconscious patterns are. They're carried emotionally and any emotion that we experience, we experience it in our bodies. So the more connected we get with our body, the more we have access to our emotions and the more we can start to understand what our emotions are telling
0: us. Right. I became more acutely aware of the importance of body intelligence. You've heard phrases like belly brain or, or oh, my gut instinct is. Yeah, yeah. but um, when I saw bodies revealed uh, years ago in uh, Chicago and they you got oh, to yeah, actually the, see these the, live specimens right, of, right. of humans and then the, <clears throat> the wiring that's going through the body, the um, electrical wiring, and it's mm-hmm. so intricate and mm-hmm. so complex and profound and it's like, okay, now I get, you know, somatic disorders and I get how yeah. you know, people have anxieties and develop ulcers and it yeah. became very real to me. Yeah. So, so the work that we do together in this room, what we call bottom-up therapy, um, is now, I always have that visual that we're trying to create different pathways and, and healing right. through connecting to our bodies. so, right. so yeah. Yeah. So Ken, just start by, you said that trauma needs to be included when we're talking about this idea of healthy versus unhealthy male socialization. And why does that seem so important? And I know we call it different names, and there's just a lot of controversy. I like using Betty Friedan's We Have a Problem with No Name when she was trying to describe in the 60s what was going on with women. Yeah. Why they were unhappy when we thought they should be just content being out in the suburbs with their white picket fence and, (laughs) you know, picking out linen and and China for their (laughs) to be the host. Um, so when we look at male socialization and unhealthy forms, we've called it what toxic we've called it uh, hegemonic masculinity, um radicalized masculinity mm-hmm.
1: your term mascupathy. Mm-hmm. Yes,
0: we came Charlie and I decided to call it mascupathy, um just again to describe more that pathological, that more unhealthy ways in which we raise boys and so say a little bit about about trauma and male socialization?
1: Yeah, to me, the, the more I learn about trauma and the more I learn about the autonomic nervous system, um, like, we have to look at it. Like, we we have to look through the lens of trauma and the autonomic nervous system mm-hmm. to understand, like, where... I mean specifically where male socialization can sometimes go off the rails has sometimes gone off the rails right um, and you know just even broader than just male socialization just to understand why the world is so freaking crazy right now in so mm. many ways right. so dysfunctional um, so I think it would uh, I think it would help to just kind of start uh, with a Definition of trauma, which mm-hmm. there's a lot of definitions. I think one of the more common definitions is um, any experience that overwhelms your nervous system to the to the extent that you can't you can't respond. Mm-hmm. So you know somebody can be somebody can have an intense experience. You know, a car accident, uh, a vi- you know, an experience of violence. Um, and you know they can respond you know they can respond to a violent attacker and and protect themselves and protect you know the people around them right. and they don't end up traumatized you know because they they had they were able to respond okay. but somebody can for whatever reason either, either their their nervous system shuts down or they're just on ice and their cars out of control and there's not a thing they can do um, or any number of things, um, and they can't prevent, they can't prevent something terrible from happening. So that's, that tends to be what, what defines trauma, not the, not a, not a harmful event itself, but the inability to, to protect yourself or prevent that from happening. Um, I, I also love Gabor Mate's, um, framework around trauma, which, which is, um, It's anything that disconnects us from ourselves, disconnects us from our essence, um, and and then pretty much inadvertently disconnects us from relationship with other people.
0: Okay. It's pretty broad. It's pretty broad. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I've heard... Trauma with a big T and trauma mm-hmm. with a little T, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, right. and again, seeing trauma maybe on a spectrum, and sure, and and trying to appreciate that, right, right,
1: right. So uh, then, you know, I think the reason today we're ta- wanting to talk about the about polyvagal theory is because um, that's such a helpful framework to also like unpack trauma and and do something about it, really. Um, so the prevailing m- medical model throughout most of the 20th century was that the autonomic nervous system, so the autonomic nervous system, let's start with that. Okay. That's the f- branch of the nervous system that is responsible for automatic, unconscious uh, body functions, like breathing, like heart, uh, your heartbeat, uh, digestion, um, hormone release, um, so things that you don't have to think about. <clears throat> I mean, you can control your breath, and you, to some extent, can control your heart rate. Right. Um, but for the most part, these 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 activities just you know they happen out of our conscious awareness. Thankfully. Thankfully, right. <laughs> we never get that. Oh, never shoot, get anything I done. To think if about we, my heart yeah, there. right, right. <laughs> so so fortunately, yeah, that's all taken care of for us. Right. Yeah. Um, because our autonomic system is, you know, regulating breath and heart and digestion, it also has to be constantly aware of whether we're safe or whether we're in danger <laughs> because that will determine what it does with all these different systems. So for example, you know, a lion jumps out from the brush and your autonomic nervous system immediately goes into flight and you just start running. Like you have, you know, you don't think about it. Your nervous right. system just takes over and it starts running yeah. your body for you. And, and it also will immediately shut down your digestion. It'll increase your heart rate, it'll right. increase your breath, um, so that you can, you know, have the largest chance of outrunning this lion and getting to some place, you know, right. where you can be safe.
0: So, so for just to bring it to the twenty-first century, um, not a, not many of us are encounter encountering lions, but <clears throat> if we have a young boy who's being, you know, r- routinely bullied by someone on the playground, and he's comfortably playing and then all of a sudden he sights this bully kind of walking across the playground, that might be a similar response that he would be like, maybe start running to some friends and try to get into a group of guys or running toward the playground monitor so he can kind of protect himself. It would be something like that maybe.
1: Yeah, for sure. Okay. Absolutely. Yep.
0: Okay.
1: Yep. So because, so, uh, because our system is constantly scanning for danger, um, like that's that's tends to be kind of its primary job like um or maybe their its primary job is just to keep the body alive right but it's maybe it's its close secondary function is to like are we safe or are we not safe i right. always have to know that um and so in the in the 20th century the model was this this autonomic system has two branches sympathetic and parasympathetic so sympathetic is the fight or flight which everybody pretty much is familiar with now and then parasympathetic um, has been just called rest and digest so that's when you're not running from a lion or you're not running from a playground bully and your body can just function as normal and digest your food and you know beat your heart at a comfortable pace right um In the 1990s, Stephen Porges comes along and says, actually, it's more complex than that. Hmm. Um, There's not really two branches, there's actually three branches. Um, There is still the sympathetic, there's not much difference there, still fight and flight. Um, What we've always called parasympathetic, he delineated into two very distinct branches. Um, That's two distinct branches of the vagus nerve. There's the ventral vagus in front and the dorsal vagus in back. Okay. The ventral vagus is called the social engagement system. Um, it's actually a little more complex than that because it's, it's a few other cranial nerves that, that uh, kind of regulate the muscles of the face. Um, we'll get into that a little yeah. bit later. Right. Um, but basically the shorthand is ventral. To say ventral means that you are in social engagement um, system. Okay. So, um, and then dorsal vagus is called the shutdown response. Um, So those two, what we used to just lump in together as parasympathetic are actually radically different um, modes of operation. Um, And he kind of puts this on an evolutionary timetable um the dorsal is the most primitive response we have the shutdown response so that's that's a you know a turtle pulling into its shell it's a you know it's a possum playing dead it's you know like you just kind of you just kind of go offline you go catatonic mm. and it might work you know it, right. it might work to escape a predator they they might like say oh this one's dead i'm not interested um, so, but it's very primitive and then then you know as as evolution progressed, um, animals developed a more complex system of fight or flight. Um, so that now you, you didn't just have the option of like checking out and hoping for the best, you, you now have the option to run away okay. or to fight back. Um, and then as we progressed into mammals and humans, um, we developed this social engagement system where instead of trying to find safety through just shutting down or, or running away or fighting, um, we now have the ability to find safety through social connection. So it's okay. like the kid on the playground like he runs to his friends and now he's safe because he's got his tribe around him. Right, right. And the bully's yeah. not going to take him all on, so so he reached out for social connection and he found it and now he's safe and now his system can settle back down and he doesn't have right. to keep he doesn't have to stay in flight.
0: So it's a more sophisticated, more developed, more evolved way of creating kind of safety but also higher ordered things like intimacy and connection and, and, and all exactly. that. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Right. Okay. Right. Right.
1: And, and that's why it has so much bearing on what we're talking about and, right. and what you and I work with and especially with men.
0: Okay. So how do we bring this into say a little bit now more about male socialization and, and trying to connect it. I mean, I use the, the playground bully example, um, but just thinking about the guys that we work with, and they're here in group therapy, and through the lens of polyvagal theory, how how are you looking at it in, in terms of trying to apply it to therapy and thinking about their history as men growing up and being in a pack of other men in this room and mm. and what is going on, you know, kind of in their body and through that polyvagal lens? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Yeah, I think anytime, anytime anybody gets together with other people, right? Like the autonomic nervous system is like bing, like you know, it's 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 on alert. It's like, am I safe? Am I am I am I not safe? Um, so it's checking it out. And so one thing that that you do beautifully in in the group, because you know, I I come once a month. Um, but you you do a, an amazing job of creating safety creating a like a relational safety in the group and so you know you know some guys are in group longer than others and you know the ones that are more new may still be kind of like i don't know yet I'm not sure i'm not sure i'm safe here yet but you can see as men stay right longer they tend to to feel safer and safer and and are able to be more vulnerable.
0: So so the, say the newer guys who have these experiences in their male socialization that says it's not safe to be open and vulnerable, what I think I hear you saying is they might have had experience of being shamed or being mocked or being humiliated for being vulnerable, for sharing feelings, to admit that they're insecure or admit that they have this shameful... Um, Um, experience and and that they had and they want don't want to share it but they're going to take a risk and and share it um so they are just probably functioning in a more of a cautious way they're not in that uh the not the dorsal but the more ventral they're not in that ventral state they're more and more kind of like i gotta protect Mm -hmm. myself because this doesn't feel safe
1: yeah yeah um Yeah, for sure. Like, uh, what Stephen Porges says is that our first impulse, um, as a mammal is to reach out for social engagement. Um, and so that's, that's what we kind of come into the world with when we are first born. Our first impulse is to reach out to mama, you know, feed me, hold me, you know, keep me warm, keep me safe. Like, you know, and I'm going to cry if I'm not immediately assured that right. that somebody's here for me. And I want to look into your eyes and I want to see my mother looking back at me with kindness and love so that I know, okay, somebody's here. They're going to take care of me because I was all nice and warm and cozy. And all of a sudden, right. what the hell, where am right. I? I'm in this, you know, cold, bright, whatever this is. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but it's our first impulse. And, but if we, if we reach out for social engagement, if we reach out for connection and we don't get it, um, then we go back down the hierarchy. So we go to the next place we go is flight. Um, and, if, and so, you know, what that looks like if the, if the lion is chasing you is you're literally running. Right. But in our modern world, like you said, we don't have too many lions prowling around. Right. Um, what that tends to look like is more like distraction, you know, we we get on social media, we get on our phones, we get we we we're, we're, we get we indulge in addiction, you know, or or just a, you know whatever kind of obsessive thing that we do to kind of just remove ourselves from right. from whatever might feel dangerous.
0: Okay,
1: it's all it's mostly unconscious. It's maybe yeah, almost completely unconscious. Okay,
0: um,
1: and so we try to find safety by escaping by running away figuratively or literally. And if we don't find safety there, you know, we, we, we're, we're drinking or we're, we're scrolling, you know, doom scrolling or whatever. Um, and we, and we still don't feel safe. Then we go down the hierarchy one more step, which is the fight response. So again, in the wild, what that looks like is you're running from the lion and the lion is catching you. And then it's like, one more step, and this lion's gonna is gonna take me out. So your nervous system just takes over again, grabs the nearest rock or stick, and turns around, and then you fight. And again, it's unconscious. You don't have control over it. It's what your body is gonna do. Um, in our world, modern world, um, what that tends to look like is like aggression or um, or like thinking like getting into a mindset of like fairness and justice and unfairness and injustice and you know and i'm going to set you straight and the next time i see you boy i'm going to give you a piece of my mind and you know and, and it's like more like obsessive kind of thinking or overt like angry behavior and yelling and you
0: know and aggression um well i think for for you know we're talking about traditional masculinity there's this kind of this idea that a real man doesn't back down. A real man can there's there is an emphasis on physicality and, and mm. kind of, you know, being more intimidating, bigger, stronger. Um and again it gets more sophisticated um as we as we hopefully mature, but there is a sense that if I'm going to be masculine, then I'm gonna use my sense of physical um prowess and, and strength to to create safety for myself.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah um and and again as porges would say like that's not our first instinct that's not our natural instinct that i believe is socially uh, socialized into us as Mm -hmm. males largely um because you know without the socialization without the unhealthy socialization we would all be encouraged to like reach out for connection and support mm. if we're not feeling safe like say hey just say you're not feeling safe or say you're scared it's okay come to mommy and daddy and say I'm, I'm, I'm scared mm-hmm. you know and, and we'll pick you up and we'll hold you and we'll reassure you or we'll ask you what you're scared about um, that that would be you know a nice way to grow up <laughs> as uh, whatever gender you are right um, but when when our socialization doesn't allow, that doesn't permit that kind of vulnerability, you know, then we're going to go to flight. And if that's not, you know, that's not tolerated, well, no, you can't run away because that's not, you know, real men don't do that. Right. Tough boys don't do that. But you can fight, yeah. So then we're going to just go back. So like social connection didn't work, flight didn't work. Okay, I'm just I'm just automatically going to go to fight, and right. I'll get some validation for that from the the culture that I'm growing up in. So I'll just hang out there, and I'll just be right. aggressive. And then when I grow up, I'll be maybe a you know domestic abuser because that's what I've been. Yeah, because that's okay, the other things are not okay.
0: Well, I think you know the edict of no fear. You see that in the back of kind of a. Bumper stickers sometimes. Yeah. It's like, typically it's not on a female's, um, (laughs) you know, on a Prius, it's more, you know, on the, you know, the bigger trucks and stuff. And again, I'm stereotyping, but there's a sense of, you know, men, real men don't have fear. And you're saying, and and what we know is that that's part of being a human. Sometimes it's not safe to express fear and we got to regulate it and manage it. But, but I think it's better if we have, Intimate connections where we can acknowledge that human aspect of being scared. I got a presentation to make, you know, that's Mm -hmm. incredibly important um, to be able to name that this is, I'm really scared of how this is going to turn out. I'm going to show up and I'm going to be prepared, but I'm here, you are my spouse or you are my best friend, and I'm going to acknowledge that I am kind of nervous about that. And by naming it, it can actually help manage it versus always trying to deny. Oh, real men are never scared or insecure.
1: Right? And and you know, the irony of course is that somebody that's posturing so so strongly to say I'm not afraid, you know, and they're being aggressive with it, like they're in they're in fight. Yeah. And fight by definition means that they're terrified. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> you know. Right. right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it, it's it's and and that's to me why this is so important to address is because um, until you can find pathways to get back to ventral to get back to that social engagement, right. you're just going to keep trying to like manage this fear, and and sadly, you know, so many men spend their entire life just trying to manage their fear by staying in fight, by staying, you know, aggressive. Very armored. Or, and, armored and, and right, yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And it's just beautiful to see men learn the n- nutritious value of being in ventral and actually receiving connection and, and affection and affirmation and, and opening up and sharing feelings and having other men, you know, validate and hold space for that. It doesn't mean that makes them soft or emasculates them. It just means it makes them human and they can still hang on to their masculinity, but be able to have that flexibility or fluidity to see what context am I in? Do I have a place where I can share and make connections? And then I have these other places where I got to suck it up and self-regulate and not show vulnerability and how can I do both?
1: Yeah, yeah, it is really beautiful to see. Mm -hmm. men who can get to that place where they they can find that vulnerability
0: what there's this term i ran into um when i was looking into um this theory called co-regulation and i was thinking about that with you know charlie and i and our book called it um the man pack which is you Mm -hmm. know how men socialize Mm -hmm. in you know fraternities or team sports Mm -hmm. or you know Mm -hmm. the bowling league or whatever um so, how does this co-regulation work? Um, again, in a more unhealthy way, perhaps, or how does it can it work in a in a in a good way, in a, in a nutritious way?
1: Yeah, it's it's a it's a good question, like where the line is between healthy and unhealthy. Sometimes, because there's two terms that are important here: self-regulation and co-regulation. Okay. So, self-regulation means. I, I noticed that I'm in fight. It's like, oh, okay, I'm in, I'm in fight. So I don't want to stay here because this is dysregulation. Right. It doesn't feel good. I'm all jacked up and I don't want to, you know, I want to settle my system down. So I'm going to find, I'm going to do some breathing. I'm going to do some you know, pull out my my tools and and move myself back into ventral. So I can do that with tools just myself. I can regulate myself, regulate my own system.
0: So the context is that the person is not truly in a fight or flight situation it's not like they don't they're not encountering a lion right right they're not being assaulted right but they're in a situation socially they're even there with their partner and and something is said and all of a sudden they feel this surge this heat that rises in their chest that tells them danger danger and you're saying that part of emotional intelligence is to to know that that fight-flight thing can happen inside of us mm-hmm. and then to have the consciousness or the mindfulness to say, oh, here it is. Right. Now what do I do when you're saying there's self-regulation techniques?
1: Right, right, yeah. Yeah, and in those moments like where our nervous system is not reacting to what's happening in reality in, okay. real, in real present time, it's reacting to something that, you know, we experienced maybe decades ago you know something the trauma of
0: childhood perhaps trauma of
1: childhood something where we were treated or mistreated in a certain mm-hmm. way and this person said this certain thing to us and it just was so similar right that it just our system was like oh my god this thing is going to happen to me again and and so yeah so yes exactly emotional intelligence is being able to recognize the difference between am i really in danger right now or is this just some traumatic you know, response some right. kind of reenactment happening.
0: Okay,
1: um, and then if we can recognize, yeah, I'm not really in danger right now. I'm just, um, I'm just reacting to, um, I'm just reacting to something from the past. Then I can self-regulate and I can right. get myself back into this
0: uh, place right. of social engagement, this ventral place. And that's what we see that happening in group, right? We have a person who gets triggered by something that is said um, in an interaction group. And then Mm -hmm. we are in the moment able to see that they're dysregulated and they're kind of agitated and they're speaking in a pitched voice or something. Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. in that moment we can, you know, intervene as as therapists and say, okay, you know, what's going on, you know, Mm -hmm. let's just slow this down. Mm -hmm. And then that's the way in which they become more aware that, I have this self-regulation capacity and right. then they want to learn that right. rather than just go into the old patterns and just start acting out or yelling or right. shutting down.
1: Right. Okay. And to come back to, you know, the co-regulation, right. um, that's also yeah. happening in, in the group, you know, it's um, and it's really important and it's really helpful because we are communal beings, you know, right. we need each other. And so, you know, if I'm, if I'm a therapist or even just a friend and, you know, I'm with somebody and they're dysregulated and I'm dysregulated and I'm like, you gotta, you know, chill, you, you know, you gotta just settle down, you know? You gotta calm down, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not calm. Right. Like I'm not, I'm not helping them calm down. They're, they're gonna co-regulate. Their nervous system okay. is going to uh, attune with mine. But if, if my nervous system is calm, and then I can say, hey, you know, let's try some breathing. Let's just try, you know, and I, and I'm doing it from a calmer place, from right. a calmer nervous system. Their nervous system is going to say, oh yeah, and not un, it's all unconscious, but their nervous system is going to say, I like that. I want right. I want some of that. Right. I want to attune to that. So that right. that's one beautiful thing about the container that you create in your groups is right. that there is that 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 like atmospheric safety that when one person gets dysregulated they can they can draw on the right. strength of the the, the more regulated right. group
0: and again you think of again the co-regulation and the trauma that some men that we work with have experienced you know like parents and older siblings and where. They had an emotional reaction, um, you know, that they were being just their childish selves and they do something that's upsetting to a parent and older sibling and then that parent gets dysregulated and, and yells and screams and shames and such and so they don't have that chance to learn that um, in, their, in their earlier experiences and perhaps bring that here to us and expect that, that that's going to happen here. Exactly, right, yeah. right. Yeah. and there's actually part of the healing process is right. they can get dysregulated and then all of a sudden a positive co-regulation experience happens right
1: and yeah. that's that's hard to even accept even when it happens cuz you're so right. wired to believe it's not going to happen and then even when it happens it's hard to see it and then and accept it or or, or just think oh that was just a one off that's not ever going to happen again right but one one of the kind of things one of the key pieces of somatic therapy is that like you, you can't really change your neurological patterning until you have an experience that contradicts what your wiring is telling you is going to happen. You know, so your wiring says, Oh yeah, I know I know what happens here. Like they, right. they're gonna yell at me, they're gonna leave me, they're gonna they're gonna shame me. Right. I know, I've been I I've I've seen this movie mm-hmm. before. Um, but when you go through an experience then, a healthy experience and you say, Okay, my amygdala is telling me this is what's going to happen, but I'm learning these tools. I'm going to regulate my nervous system and I'm going to try to do this a different way. And I'm going to ask for what I need. And then you go through all that and you have a positive experience. Like then it's like, okay, I just did this. Like, I just had this experience then the neurons can start to like rewire and say all right we have a different pathway now right. we don't have to always go down this right. one we got
0: a new a new route here right it's kind of like we're in the we're in the business of changing brains you know it's kind of like the neuroplasticity yeah. um, of the brain and and yeah. we don't realize that we're actually creating uh neuronal pathways and we kind of talked about that 80 20 rule and kind of like there's so much wiring that goes from the limbic system. You mentioned the amygdala, um, where these emotions happen, and then you know all this wiring says fight or flight, or we got to shut down, or bad things are going to happen. And so the therapy is about creating the wiring to go down and to be able to settle the limbic system down. And so having different experiences creates, you know, neural pathways down to settle um, some of those more primitive parts of our brain. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: So it's kind of it's kind of interesting to look at that that we're changing brains as well as changing hearts and belief systems and yeah, you know sometimes that's you know cognitive behavioral we're just changing how people think and behave. Right, right, <laughs> you know, it's right. It's like eh, right. it's a little more complex than that. Right, right.
1: <laughs> yeah, and because really one thing that we're we're doing is we're we're changing people's physiology. Um. You know, it's like this is this autonomic response is physiological. It's like heart, you know, right. it's it's breath. It's like you know muscle tension. It's you know, and so the the tools for changing that the most effective tools right. that, that I know are are physiological tools. You change right. changing your breath pattern. Right, very physiological. There's nothing cognitive about it. There's, you know, putting your hand right. on your heart, putting hands on your face. Um, you mm-hmm. know.
0: Yeah, and in so much in, you know, marriages and, and family relationships, you think about so often that people are are getting emotionally hijacked, and they're in a place of defensiveness, or you know, they're they're fighting because they're yelling and trying to you know get the get the last word in and stuff, and and no real human connection is going to happen when you're in that mode, right? right so if right. you can't learn how to Self-regulate and as a marriage co-regulate, um, then you're not going to have the kind of love and connection that you want. Um, yeah, and so it's just like this idea of even more peace in our communities and more peace in the world is is you know is is you know one human at a time. It's like let's mm. let's create peace by creating peace with ourselves. Right. Let's create peace by creating peace with the people close to us. And, exactly. And it's like. Right. More we can teach self-regulation, co-regulation, um, better we're gonna be able to create these safer, more loving, more healthy communities. That's that's exactly it. That's that's so powerful. Yeah. yeah. Pipe dreams, utopia, right? <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> know. No, it's, 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 it kind of gives us kind of aspiration for for the work we do.
1: You know, it does. Yeah,
0: we help change. Yeah these men and then they go out into their their marriages their relationships of being a parent their right. friendships and right and so it's all it's raise important
1: a, raise a healthier new
0: generation yeah so yeah. well thanks for coming in Ken and kind of explaining this you know the revealing men is kind of getting behind the curtain to reveal what's really going on with guys. And I think we kind of, you know, took it to a deep level and looked at neurochemistry and, yeah. and, um, so I think it's, uh, it's a, an interesting conversation to know that that's going on behind the curtain on a deep level.
1: Yeah. Well, so, pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of revealing men. If You're looking for more information about counseling, coaching, and consultative services, please visit the Men's Resource Center at West Michigan online at men'scenter.org. Also, feel free to contact us on our website if you have questions about this segment, ideas for a topic, or would like to be a guest on the Revealing Men podcast. Please take a moment to subscribe and leave us a rating so others can find us. Be well and have a great day.